Hello, and welcome to On Focus, brought to you by the Focal Therapy Clinic, where we address issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, often avoided, and too often ignored. Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer amongst men in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. I'm Claire Delmar. Joining me today is consultant urologist, Tim Dutteridge, who works with the Focal Therapy Clinic and is based at University Hospital Southampton. Tim is an innovator in focal therapy and has co-investigated most of the clinical trials and studies that have built the evidence base for focal therapy and advanced its adoption in practice. Last year, he was appointed as clinical champion for Prostate Cancer UK, which will give him even more impact on innovative clinical practice across the NHS. He's here today to talk with me about some of the key issues driving practice in diagnosing and treating prostate cancer and how this is impacting both patients and clinicians. Tim, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's great to be back uh, talking again about prostate cancer. Um, it's been a long time. It feels like there's a lot to catch up on. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I thought, you know, it's sort of, you know, midsummer and, you know, we're sort of halfway through the year. So it's a really good opportunity to um, kind of round round things up. So so let's, let's let's start off on that sort of general point. I mean, there's there has been a lot going on since the start of the year um, at the Focal Therapy Clinic, but also in the wider prostate cancer community. Can you tell us about some of the trends you've seen with the with patients that are coming to the focal therapy clinic? Sure. Um, I think one of the things that happened uh, a little while ago is there was a lot of attention about um, another form of focal therapy, the nanoknife. And this is mainly because they were launching a new NHS clinical service at UCL. And it has been used by colleagues in London for some time. And uh, we haven't really seen, I guess, any strong, you know, sort of UK data that makes us think about changing practice but I think you know around the world they have been accumulating data and it looks like a very uh, strong contender to be a kind of regular uh, tool for focal therapy and it works you know a bit a bit like uh, cryotherapy in the sense it's a needle based technology uh, and that's perhaps most useful for targeting the front of the prostate and maybe gland, glands which have uh, contraindications to high food and you know at the moment I, I use cryotherapy for such cases so I'm really interested to see whether uh, nanoknife might offer in certain circumstances an, an advantage, you know, and maybe it's going to be better at that, you know, treating around the urethra where the, you know, the warming, we have this warming catheter with cryotherapy, which can sometimes inhibit the, the, the action of the ice. And that, that's interesting. And uh, it might also be more sort of targeted, you know, maybe that the, the extent of the ice when we're using cryotherapy is a bit uncontrolled. And, uh, you know, maybe that's why uh, some people don't preserve erections in that treatment. With that. Mm. So maybe mm. man and not offer some advantage there. So I think this is an interesting uh, trend that I, I know we're looking at um, starting a nanonife program as well. So I'm really excited about that. Patience so what's interesting is that, you know, we're, we're seeing, um, if I can even generalize a little bit more, just some new modalities for delivering focal therapy. And obviously nanonife is, is one. Um, and obviously we're, we're all looking at that. Um, and I mean, I've even engaged with people around water vapor ablation. So I guess you know, on that specific point about about the new modalities, I mean, what do you think of of how these will be adopted and accepted, or I should reverse that, accepted and and adopted clinically? I, I think you don't have to have every single tool in the box in your clinic. I think as a practitioner, you need to have enough tools that you can tackle nearly all of the cases, but not necessarily all of them. Um, and for me, I think HIFU and a needle-based technology together uh, probably covers most things. Uh, it may be that we learn a little bit more about some of the technical advantages of uh, some of the other, you know, ablative technologies, uh, so that maybe we have three in the clinic 
But I, I, I think that um, there is a danger of having too many because uh, you then start to sort of dilute the evidence base a bit and you're not sure whether your different ablation modalities may actually be, you know, delivering the same result that you're quoting from the evidence. So mm-hmm. uh, it's like things like laser ablation are, are coming along, um, you know, using even drugs, you know, like there was a study using uh, photodynamic therapy drugs. Uh, and there, I know there are companies uh, developing that even, even though the 2CAD uh, drug seems to have stalled. But I think we will continue to see more and more ablation technologies coming along. And the key principles of developing a new one will be to have something that's very easy to control, mm-hmm. very, very easy to plan, uh, where the sort of cutoff between where you intend to treat and where the treatment actually finishes is very tight. Mm-hmm. So that you, you know, define your treatment volume and the margin of tissue around that that you want. But anything else beyond that is, is, is left alone. We, any technology that can improve on our current ways of doing that will we'll get, uh, you know, some attention. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But, you know, at the moment, uh, my, my own preference is to stick with HIFU and cryotherapy because I've got, you know, technically I'm very experienced with those now. And I think that if you go and see a focal therapy practitioner, what you really want to know is are they really experienced with the tools that they're using? I'm not sure it particularly matters which tool, as long as that tool delivers uh, a good focal treatment. Mm-hmm. I think that's, it's, it's very much the same with, you know, doesn't matter how you do certain operations, as long as the person who you're seeing doing them is doing them with a high frequency and is very experienced at them. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, there's also, you, you know, basing that treatment on precision diagnostics, you know, the, the, the advances yeah, in the that's, imaging. That's a good segue actually into the other thing, which um, is coming up a lot in the focal therapy clinic is men uh, coming along with MRI scans and biopsies, you might say, but, uh, you know, but MRI scans, particularly where the quality of image puts them at a bad starting point to be considered a candidate for focal therapy. And we saw this lovely uh, sort of publication from uh, Dr. Claire Allen from University College London and her team looking at something that's been coined PyQual. And this is a sort of quality assessment scoring system for MRI scans. And I think it it could be a good way of uh, individual centers, you know, self-assessing their work and saying, oh, is this up to standard? What can Mm -hmm. we do? change and we, we've in fact in our own center noticed that one of the centers that we're using regularly for imaging is probably not as good as we'd like it and we're going to uh, try and actually uh, tweak the protocol uh, so that it's similar to the one that we're using in the in the main center and uh, you know it's it's I think we need to be sensitive to the quality of imaging because if we're not using good imaging at the very beginning of the pathway then it tends to undermine all of the other steps that follow mm-hmm. uh, and that's, that's also true for the, the biopsy technique. We do see it, again, a mixture of different approaches. And I'm not sure if we really know which is the right one. Um, on the one hand, you know, with, with MRI that's done well, and bearing in mind some of the people who, who are adopting a less intensive biopsy program uh, with their patients are not basing that on good imaging. But, you know, if you've got a really good MRI, you can argue that if you target the area of interest, maybe you don't need to target all of the normal looking bits of prostate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some people are adopting that. And my slight worry is that sometimes they're doing that when the imaging is not of great quality. Mm-hmm. Um, our approach is that we are accepting, yes, that the scan is mostly right, but that sometimes it's not right. And therefore having some limited systematic biopsies, which means biopsies taken throughout the prostate, but not sort of every five millimeters, you know, maybe a, a three per sector, which might mean nine on each side as a bare minimum you know, this gives you a kind of map of the prostate, which you can really rely on Mm -hmm. because, you know, the histology doesn't really lie. Um, 
you know, obviously you can have some degree of sampling and more biopsies you get, perhaps the more confident you are. But if you combine that systematic sampling with the targeted biopsies that we know we need, looking at directly at the lesions that we've seen on imaging, we feel that gives the best preparation for considering focal therapy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, if somebody comes along and they've got good imaging and they've only had targeted biopsies, we might say, look, you know, this is not exactly as we do it, but it's a very reasonable way of doing it. And we will some, you know, sometimes just explain the uncertainty. Most of the patients I say, you know, will accept that if the imaging is good. But if we say, look, your imaging was not up to standard, most of those men who are keen on focal therapy will accept a rebiopsy just mm -hmm. to sort of verify. It helps us to verify that the focal therapy we're about to do is a sensible decision because the, the worst that, you know, the last thing we want is to do a focal therapy and then a year later, discover that the other side of the prostate has yeah. just as bad cancer, which was probably there, but mm -hmm. we just find it properly. So Didn't um, find it. Mm, yeah. Indeed. That's, so, that's a regular theme, I think, in, in, in our patients at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And um, no, I, I, I can see that. And um, I, I want to turn a little bit to, to some of the, the trials you've been involved with, because, um, you know, I, as I mentioned in my introduction, on a wider basis, you've been closely involved with a number of these trials that have generated um, a powerful evidence base for the efficacy of focal therapy. And I know one of them you're involved with now is called Kronos. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the Kronos study uh, was interesting because it had two branches to it. And um, the, the branch that I think probably the urology community is most interested in is the Kronos A study. And this is a randomized control trial between uh, partial ablation or you know, another way of saying focal therapy against a whole gland radical treatment. And you know, this is within a group of men who we would consider suitable for focal therapy. So typically it would be intermediate risk disease situated in one half of the gland and on the other half of the gland, preferably no disease, but we would accept a small amount of low risk disease that could subsequently be monitored. Um, and so we recruited uh, a reasonable number, it was quite difficult to recruit to this trial because essentially we were asking men to suspend their preference if they had one uh, and to try and convince them that actually it was very illogical in many ways to have a preference when we have these two good treatment approaches, both of which have strengths, you know, but of course they have weaknesses too. Mm -hmm. And we don't know which package offers the best balance of strengths and weaknesses. And so every time they said, well, I like the sound of low side effects, we would say, well, but do we know it lasts, you know, is it as good as surgery and radiotherapy? Or they might say, well, a radical prostatectomy is well established. You know, I like the sound of something that's tried and tested. And we say, yeah, but what about the side effects? And so constantly trying to bring people from the, uh, you know, the, the polar extremes of their decision-making and have them hovering in the middle where they genuinely, like us felt, we don't know what's best. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and that, if you can get the doctor and the patient on the same page with that, we call that clinical equipoise, uh, where we just don't know what's the right thing to do. And this is the, the time when we can do a randomized control trial and, and, and you know, expect men to reasonably accept a randomized allocation. Mm -hmm. of and, and you can imagine that many men, especially you know, when they've heard their friends or they might have heard in the media some, about some treatment that you know, has had a good outcome, they very quickly latch on to something that they think, oh, this sounds good. Mm -hmm. And in fact, all of our clinical pathways are designed to um, encourage men to do that, to, to identify, to self-identify with the treatment that they like the sound of. Mm -hmm. uh, the trouble is that doesn't help you when you're trying to run a trial. Uh, and what we found was it was really quite challenging to get men to accept randomization, but some men did. Um, 
And, you know, we, we will publish that data in the fullness of time, but we've sort of coming around to the conclusion that, the, that it seems difficult, maybe impossible to recruit, you know, seven or 800 men to be randomly allocated a treatment like that. Mm. That's how many men we would need to answer the question, which is the main question everyone wants is, which is the best approach. Yeah, know? that's really interesting. I mean, and, if you, have you seen this happen in other, you know, even non-prostate oriented and, and other kinds of trials before? Well, I mean, a good example in the prostate world is the, when robotic prostatectomy came along. Uh, it's very, very difficult to randomize people between open surgery and robotic prostatectomy. Um, there was a three-way study, I think LOPRA it was called, and that famously, you know, didn't recruit because the cat was out the bag, you know, once mm. robotic prostatectomy was available and all the centers that were doing it, you know, people came there and they wanted the robot because they just had this feeling it was better. Mm -hmm. uh, it took a very, very long time to gather randomized evidence. And, uh, you know, as is always the case uh, with new technologies, you know, sometimes the, the benefits that are presented are much more of an incremental gain rather than a sea change. Um, so randomized control trials are really important because they tend to neutralize a lot of the perceived gains from observational studies. So mm -hmm. I don't discount for a minute, this is, an, this is an important thing to do. But in reality, um, you know, the choice with focal therapy and, and radical therapy is, is a different choice to two drugs you might be comparing or mm -hmm. two mm -hmm. variations of a different operation. They're, they're totally different philosophies. And so I guess having tried really hard to recruit to this randomized trial, and, you know, it, it was too much of a struggle, I think, to try again. Um, my feeling is that we can say that that has failed and uh, we have to therefore rely on the next best thing, which is observational data, but, you know, with statistical methodology to try and make the comparison most fair. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe if we're going to do that, rather than doing it, you know, using retrospective data that we've collected, we, we could set up a prospective, um, you know, a, a proper trial where it's supported by nurses, not the sort of more ad hoc um, data collection we have for the registries. And, and actually, maybe this is the only way we're going to get a meaningful comparison. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing to accept is that men are making these choices more of a philosophical thing. So people, if you say, look, what if this treatment is 10% less good after 10 years mm -hmm. rather than it being equally good? What if it's 10% less good? but in the short term, you benefit from lower side effects. You know, when I explain focal therapy to men like that, I'm saying, look, it might be equally good or it might be less good. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. But if you get less side effects for the first period of time, and then maybe you have to have an extra treatment with a greater risk than, you know, because even surgery patients might need extra treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's really a comparative risk. Uh, anyway, when you put that to men, they're quite happy often to, to sort of kick the can down the road and say, I would just like to be left unaffected by side effects for as long mm -hmm. as possible because i recognize this disease is not always a kind of lethal entity it's you know it's a sort of your control in managing the disease mm -hmm. that may, may never affect you anyway and um so i think putting it to men like that sometimes is a way of helping them to understand the, the lack of evidence and the uncertainty and helping them to make a choice which is more important to them yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, even just hearing you talk now, I mean, the, the language is evolving in itself. I mean, even you know, we talk about focal therapy and then we talk about the modalities to deliver it. But in, in, increasingly, there's this new term around ablation, which I know is a technical term, but, you know, often patients don't understand that. And, you know, yeah. in order to give the information you're describing about 
risks and uncertainties. I think you know, this is something that you and, and you know, your colleagues at the Focal Therapy Clinic really excel at, is really helping men to understand their choices. Um, and even yeah, use of the word managing as opposed to curing is, you know, is an interesting choice of language. Well, many men are cured, but the thing yeah. is cure is quite a strong word. And yeah. um, of course, even if you apply a curative therapy in inverted commas, um, you know, lots of those men don't get cured. And yeah. so I think we're always managing the disease. Yeah. Um, I think uh, perhaps it's more realistic to talk about managing the disease when we know that we're leaving low-grade disease for surveillance. You mm-hmm. know, that's a very clear example where we're not curing the patient. We're just helping to prevent progression. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think many men understand if they look at the risk calculator, there's this um, predict prostate website, which mm-hmm. is and men see that the incremental gain of radical treatment is maybe a few percentage points at 15 years mm-hmm. uh, and survival. They're like, why do I need to put myself through radical treatment for that? You know, a 3% gain at 15 mm-hmm. years. You yeah. Know. It's, it's, it's interesting. And, and, and I just want to touch on and just as we sort of um, move to the end here. I mean, you know, the things you've talked about imaging biopsies, histology, you talked about, you know, as they continue to advance, um, focal therapy becomes more viable for a larger number of men, you know, with, with even though you're building up the, the, the database and the evidence base to support that. So how do you, how do you see this trajectory playing out in terms of focal therapy along the spectrum of uh, active surveillance on one end and more well, radical procedures on the other end? Well, the big picture for me is that we've got to reduce deaths. And the only way to do that is we've got to find more of the important cases earlier but the side effect of doing that is that we're likely to identify cases that we don't want to know about and don't want to treat. And, and we're also probably going to have to do more activity. And so there's a sort of um, a funding question really as to whether this is important enough for the country that we invest in this. Um, and so that's a public health question. Mm-hmm. Um, so my approach, if I had, you know, if I was in charge of designing the whole thing, I would, I would really start to encourage research on, MR guided screening. They've done a bit already with uh, you know, Imperial, doing a great thing with Prostagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously that's paired up with PSA, of course, but it's not mm-hmm. reliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we need probably more artificial intelligence to interpret those scans uh, to, because we, you know, we just don't have enough radiologists otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the exciting thing as well about uh, AI is that we're bringing that into image uh, screening for, of, of, of histology cases as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to try and iron out this issue about... Um, whether we can rely on targeted biopsies alone or whether uh, we, we do, as I'm doing, uh, you know, do a lot of systematic biopsies that would obviously reduce a lot of costs if we could safely cut those out and treat men based on the images alone. And I think that the way that we get to that point is by having a really rigid quality control of MRI for prostate. You know, if we're going to see this massive expansion in MRI for prostate, we've got to have some sort of standardization and uh, rules, you know, uh, about yeah. this. You find that with cervical smearing and everything, you don't have 20 different ways of doing that. It's a very standardized process. And, and that also links into the question of contrast or no contrast in the, in the initial sort of test. And we've got trials ongoing uh, through colleagues in London uh, where they're, they're going to answer that question. And eventually we'll get to the point where we're finding more cancers uh, as a consequence of the, 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 the sort of stage shift that we'll have in that process. We will need to do more surveillance and more focal therapy uh, but I'm hoping that we will be able to deploy m- more and uh, more appropriate radical treatments to those people who need them. Uh, and, you know, if we could do all of that, I'm pretty convinced that we could substantially reduce the deaths from pr- prostate cancer in this country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that for me is, the, you know, the, 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 the dream. Um, but there's so many elements to achieving that. 
that you know it's it's a long battle and uh, uh, but I'm really pleased to be working with some excellent academics uh, you know Hash Ahmed the, the, uh, Mark Emberton uh, Caroline Moore all of these people you know are doing amazing things to um, push the trials forwards and, uh, and in Southampton we've really focused on supporting those uh, trials and recruiting to them and my other big wish is that I sort of join them and uh, start designing my own trials so that's the sort of next the five-year plan for me is uh, to um, uh, perhaps take a sidestep and uh, do become more of an academic let's see what see what happens well okay good luck with that and um, and on that note I want to thank you very much for joining us and um, you know sharing what's uh, what's what's happening both in the trial world and and on the actual clinical cold face, so to speak. So thanks, Tim. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Nice to speak to you. A transcript of this interview and links to more information about Tim and his work are available in the program notes on our website, along with further information on diagnostics and treatment for prostate cancer and additional interviews and stories about living with prostate cancer. Please visit www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Focal Therapy Clinic. Thanks for listening. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time.